you're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. In many ways, the World Cup has done a soft power job for government in Doha and for the country because now the country is very firmly on the world stage. It's very firmly part of the football narrative. And what we're seeing is is businesses and governments and uh, other entities around the world seeking to engage with Qatar with a view to doing business with them. It may well be that we have to head towards a more distributed form of, for example, Olympic Games, where you have events taking place over perhaps a longer period of time in different countries, but nevertheless contribute to a greater event. There is something about disengagement when when your club is owned by a foreigner, but equally, I would argue, there's a danger too about disengagement from clubs that are owned by British investors, because in many cases, they simply cannot compete. Hi, Richard here. My guest this time is Professor Simon Chadwick. He's an academic with various interests, really, but it's all concentrating on the business of sport. And in this particular podcast, we're going to talk about the concept of soft power, how sport is used as a political tool, effectively. Check out the show notes for links to Simon, his articles, where you can find him on Twitter and social media. You can also find me at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media or sports content strategy is out there on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Go to my website, Mr. Richard Clark, to subscribe to my newsletter or to contact me. Anyway, I'll let Simon introduce himself with his job title and what he researches into because it's kind of a long list, very deep and involved, and he's better talking about it than me. Then we go straight into the chat. Here he is. Hello, my name is Simon Chadwick. I'm Professor of Sports Enterprise at Salford University in Manchester, where I'm also Director of the Centre for Sport Business. Uh, Amongst other things, I'm the Founding Director of the China Soccer Observatory at the University of Nottingham, and I am a Visiting Industry Fellow at Ian Leung Business School in Shanghai, where I just helped helped them to found the Centre for the Eurasian Sport Industry. Thanks for speaking to me today, Simon. There's a million things I I could talk about with you. Uh, You've got such a diverse set of academic interests. But one thing I want to talk about is soft power, the concept of soft power in sport. So what is it and what are the best examples? Um, In simple terms, soft power is attractive power. And this contrasts, obviously, with coercive power. Um, and coercive power involves normally guns and tanks and threats and, and so forth. Uh, so soft power is, is very much around getting people to uh, like you, getting people to be attracted to you, to engage with you, and ultimately to want the same things that uh, that you want. And I guess if you were to compare this to everyday life, um, if you think about people in your everyday life, those who threaten you and are potentially uh, violent towards you, you're more likely to, to recoil from, you won't have a good relationship, um, you won't look for win-win situations, whereas those people who are who are nice to you, those people who uh, seek to align with your interests so that the two of you can, together can achieve win-win situations, this is what soft power is all about. And, and I guess even more simplistically, it's kind of good cop, but bad cop. Hard power is bad cop. Good cop is soft power. So how's this used in sport? Um, it's it's used in lots of different ways uh, across sport. Um, Great Britain is a is a, a fine exponent of, of exercising soft power in sport, and in particular using the Premier League and what we've seen over the last ten years, certainly, but possibly a little longer than that. Even is the use of the league itself and and uh, clubs within the league by the government as a means through which to over to engage overseas target audiences. 
So it's it's not unusual, for instance, for uh, the Department of Trade and Industry to uh, go on overseas trade missions and to take people from, for example, uh, a football club uh, to talk about the Premier League, to talk about football. And, and as, as I'm sure you and your listeners will already know, no matter where you go in the world, you can always start a conversation by talking about football. So given that Britain has this national asset, uh, the Premier League and, and Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal and these others. This is a great way of starting a conversation which serves as the prelude to engaging people and, and hopefully um, committing them to trade deals with Britain. But it's it's not just Britain. We, we see this elsewhere in the world. I think in particular, it, um, uh, we look at Qatar and Qatar has been particularly adept at um, utilising soft power uh, if we think about the the 2022 World Cup as a, as a as an example, ten years ago nobody was talking about Qatar. Um, now everybody's talking about Qatar, so people know that the country exists. Increasing numbers of people know where Qatar is. Uh, some people are even planning trips to go there. And obviously, notwithstanding some of the the criticisms that the country has faced, in many ways the World Cup has done, has done a soft power job for for Doha government in Doha and for the country, because now the country is very firmly on uh, uh, on the, the world stage. It's very firmly part of the the football narrative, and what we're seeing is is businesses and governments and uh, other entities around the world seeking to engage with Qatar with a view to doing business with them. You've also talked about this concept of the nation brand, and we see that with Qatar because it's on Barcelona shirts, for example, and that wasn't happening. It didn't seem to be happening even 10 years ago in terms of uh, sponsorship in sport. Am I right in saying that? And, and if so, just develop this idea of, of the nation brand. So if we if we look at Qatar specifically, I would guess that, that for most um, people across the world, certainly for most people in Europe and, and North America, uh, their their main engagement with Qatar uh, over the last ten years is is probably or has probably been the World Cup, and and secondly maybe Qatar Airways, um, and we've seen airlines used as a as a um, as a means through which to build a nation brand and, and, and exert soft power influence. And Emirates in particular is a, is a great example of that. But if we go back to Qatar, most of us 10 years ago, apart from the World Cup and, and, and Qatar Airways, um, we had very little knowledge of Qatar. We didn't know anything about the country. We didn't know what values it, st- it stands for. As I say, I think most people probably even now may not know where it is. But what we've seen progressively is, is the use of um, sports investments and and that's events uh it's sponsorships it's the uh, ownership of of overseas assets in particular increasingly being used as as a way of raising awareness building visibility but equally communicating messages about the values uh about the brand proposition that is important to government in doha and it's also about raising awareness of uh qatari businesses now, many of us will know Qatar Airways now, but if you look at the Paris Saint-Germain shirt on, on the sleeve, you, uh, you, on one sleeve, you've, you've got QNB, which is Qatar National Bank, uh, and, and certainly people in France will now be familiar with Qatar National Bank. Uh, on the, the tail of the shirt at the back, you have a redu. Uh, if you don't know already uh, by now, you will, because if you're going to go to the World Cup in 2022 and you want to buy a SIM card for your mobile phone, chances are you're going to buy a Redu. Uh, a Redu is the, the Qatari state telecommunications company. Uh, we also know that uh, Paris Saint-Germain has a, a relationship with QTA. 
and this has been subject to some scrutiny uh, by UEFA under the financial fair play regulations. Uh, QTA is the Qatar Tourism Authority, now the Qatar Tourism Council. But from the start of next season, 2019 into 2020, uh, Paris Saint-Germain will have a new shirt sponsor, the Aco uh, Hotel Group. People will know this uh, hotel chain from, for example, um, uh, uh, Ibis and Ibis Styles. They too are, are part owned by the, the, the Qataris. So essentially Paris Saint-Germain's shirt and, and the deals that are carried on those shirts are, are really the, the, the public face of, of brand Qatar. And, and what they're doing is they're raising awareness of and, and building profile and presence of Qatari companies and their brands with a view to being able to compete not just in with brands in Qatar, but obviously being able to compete compete internationally in overseas markets. What did the transfer of Neymar from Barca to PSG tell us about soft power? My opinion all, all along of, uh, of 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 Neymar, the Neymar deal was that it was a it was a soft power statement. Um, Obviously, Neymar is an incredibly talented footballer. He was playing for one of the top clubs in the world. You would expect him to have attracted a, a premium transfer fee. Um, but I think to, to more than double the, the, the transfer fee um, was, was, was a shock. It was a surprise. And in my opinion, it was about more than football. It was about soft power. So this was at one level, I think, about the Qatari saying, um, we want the best. Uh, we want to build um, glamour and excitement and style. And really, the, these are these are some of the promised propositions that, that Qatar wants you to have about the country as a whole. That it's stylish and it has money and it, that it's glamorous and it wants to be the best. Uh, and, and if you fly Qatar Airways, you'll see this. If you go to downtown downtown Doha, you will see the government trying to do this. So I think it was all bound up in this this brand Qatar proposition. It was it was about communicating who Qatar is and what it is and what it's trying to do. But I think what you've also got to keep in mind is that Qatar has been involved in a, in a feud with regional neighbours, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, Egypt, to name uh, four of the big um, antagonists, if we can call them that at this stage. And really, I think what the Neymar deal was about was, was about Qatar flexing its muscles. It was, it was a, a, a statement of strength, a show of strength to its neighbours, particularly Saudi, Saudi Arabia, which historically has had this kind of bigger, better, stronger relationship with its much smaller near neighbour uh, uh, with Qatar. And this was government in Doha saying, we are strong. We have the resources. We can compete. If you want, if you want to fight us, if you want to battle us, if you want to antagonise us, go ahead. But we're just going to do it straight back at you. And I think what was particularly interesting about um, the signing of Neymar in that period, so the 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 uh, the spat, the feud with Saudi Arabia and the others started in June. The signing of Neymar took place in August of, of that year, two thousand seventeen, and and for a period of time. Rather than talking about the strength of Saudi Arabia or the conflict or, or other issues associated with the, the feud, the narrative, the conversation was all about Qatar. It's all about Neymar. It's all about Paris Saint-Germain. And I think in many ways that 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 is the essence of nation branding and, and of soft power. It's about attempting to... It's about attempting to, 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 to manage perceptions, attitudes and behaviours of external target audiences. How much is social and digital media... A part of this obviously the ability to connect with the world and to send a message 
to anyone everywhere it's our ability to, to do that has changed so dramatically over over the last 10 to 20 years so how much has that accelerated this process and how much is it a fundamental building block of, of globalization such as this obviously yeah you can't you can't really compete um as a as a as a country as a company as a you know, as a football club as a, as a university you can't really compete effectively now without a social and digital presence and if you were to look at for instance um the supreme committee for delivery and legacy uh, twitter feed or uh, or some of their posts on instagram um what you get is a very uh, interesting portrayal of uh, of, of Qatar and, and the World Cup. Um, it's very much around uh, lavish expenditure, the creation of the best possible facilities, the delivery of, a, of an event that the Qataris want to be unsurpassed. Um, but this is a very far, very far cry from the kinds of social and digital posts you're getting coming out of, for example, Amnesty International, or you're getting coming out of Riyadh, or you're getting coming out of some fan groups. And so I think just as just as we're, we're seeing contests on the field of play in sport and in football, we're also seeing contests off the field of play in, in sport and in football. And I think particularly if you look at some of the, if you look at the ways in which the Qataris and Saudi Arabians, for instance, have managed their communications around the feud, this is this is really, really very interesting because I think, in essence, the Qataris obviously are very keen to aggrandize what they're what they're trying to do through 2022, and so the the uh, the production of content is very slick. It is built around a message of being the best and delivering amazing, which is is the Qatari slogan. But at the same time, what you've also got is the Saudi Arabians, for instance, commissioning uh, consultants and communications experts in London, in Washington, D.C., in New York. And very often they've been responsible for creating content and messaging that is very much counter to that, that official Qatari uh, portrayal of itself. And so what you've now got is, is I, I don't want to stray into the arena of fake news because I don't necessarily think that that. Um, news is always fake. I think it's sometimes disingenuous. In other words, it's not entirely truthful. But certainly, in in, in terms of this, the, the sporting environment and, and digital media, social media, if you look at some of the, the these uh, these spats, some of these communications battles between Riyadh and Doha, using sport, I think they are uh, uh, an indication of how significantly the environment, the communications environment, has changed over the last decade. Does what happened in China in the last 10 years, the dramatic change of strategy, buying fantastic players to come to the domestic league, uh, investing in teams overseas, um, does that count as soft power as well? It's, it just seems more obvious. It seems more overt. It is. Uh, I think there are, there, are, there are several dimensions to it. It's, it's, it's an onion that you have to unpeel and, and take off the layers. Um, there is something about China's ascendancy to uh, a position that it now effectively occupies as one of the, the major superpowers in the world. And I'm talking superpower in economic, political, cultural terms. Um, I think to be accepted at the world's top table, you've got to play football and you've got to play football well. And, and we know that you know, the British, the French, the Germans, the Russians uh, and others, the Brazilians, the, the South Africans, they're, they're football crazy. 
United States is becoming increasingly uh, strong as a, as a football nation. So to be in amongst this this group of, of, of nations that is seen as being important and influential, they have a football presence and, and China wants part of that. And, and it's almost like a, another piece in the jigsaw of China becoming what it sees as, as being um, a legitimate member of, of, of a, a legit, legitimate and an important member of, of the global community. So that that's one part. I think the second part is is China has been flirting with football now for two or three decades and, and never really getting much progress. And, and so what we've seen over the last uh, five years is, is, a, is, a, is a renewed strategic commitment to growing the sport domestically. And I think it's important just as a, as a quick related aside to, to stress how uh, how much of a minority sport or a niche sport football actually is in China. Other, other sports like badminton, table tennis are, are far more uh, popular. Um, but I certainly I think I think football, too, is, is part of a, a soft power play by by Beijing. Um, to to change people's perceptions of the country. Uh, I was in China very, very recently, and when you see the country, um, there are certain parts of Beijing, for example, that are space-age-like, you know, this is a vision of the future. But at the same time, there are certain parts of Beijing that, that uh, are reminiscent of, of communist times, you know, going, going back to the 1950s and 60s. And I think it's really the, the, these kinds of... Uh, outdated perceptions and these stereotypes, if we can put it that way, that, that China is trying to, trying to counter through its football. And so if it can construct a, um, a, a narrative that somehow China is modern, it's progressive, it's successful at football, it is delivering a, an attractive product that is, that is uh, making a contribution to the world game and, and is engaged with by people across the world. You know, th this is all part of changing people's perceptions of, 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 of the country. And certainly whilst I was there last week, uh, there was a lot of talk about um, China bidding for the 2030 World Cup. And, and I think if that was to ultimately come come to be, then what we would see is, is a fairly lavish and, and grand um, stadium construction plan because China would be very, very keen to, to showcase the best of what the country has to offer and would be keen to, to, to kind of uh, address those outdated perceptions of the country and create this new modern face for, for, uh, for the nation. So just to fill in the background, so tell me if I'm wrong, it was President Xi and Vision for Sport November 2014 wanted to win the World Cup, host the World Cup by 2025 to be the biggest domestic sporting economy. So uh, yeah, kind of, kind of in general terms. Um, I think as far as the the big, the world's biggest domestic sporting economy is is concerned, um, in end of two thousand fourteen, she said eight hundred and fifty billion dollars by twenty twenty five. That's across two planning cycles, which typically you will find in a in a centrally planned economy of this nature. Um, if if this is true. And if this is a genuine target and, and tangible evidence can be provided of having achieved this target, this effectively would double the global industry size. So this is this is a big, bold, brave move. But there are some people who are concerned that, that this, these are just words. Um, there's always a, a concern about um, the the standard of data collection and reporting in China. And so that that headline number is going to be very interesting to watch because uh, it's, it's, it's a figure that's not entirely trusted, um, and we wait to see whether or not China can achieve it. On, on football, uh, it's, actually, it's actually not the case that she said that he wants China to win the World Cup. Um, 
the clarification that subsequently came from the Chinese Football Association, which in essence is a is a is an arm of or a branch of state the state authorities, is China wants to be a leading FIFA nation by 2050. Now, obviously, that that is a little more vague than winning the World Cup. Um, so it could mean winning the World Cup, but it could mean meaning winning the women's rather than the men's World Cup. It could mean winning uh, 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 the World Cup at a different age level. It could mean um, having a FIFA president from China. It could, ha- it could mean having ex-co members from China. It could mean, for example, um, having a significant number of sponsors in that FIFA sponsorship portfolio. And as we already know, four of the, the, the current FIFA sponsors FIFA World Cup sponsors are Chinese. And in that sense, you might argue that that China is already a, a leading FIFA nation. So I, I think that what listeners should do is keep a very open mind about interpreting that leading FIFA nation status, because it doesn't necessarily mean that China anytime soon is going to win the World Cup. Now, Yet again, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were working to a, a series of five-year plans or, or the tendency in China is to work to five-year plans. So presumably we're towards the end of the first one. Um, so my question is, has that achieved its short-term aims and what's the next mm. one going to be about? Well, I think the important thing for, the, for, for China and Chinese government is they will inevitably say, yes, we've achieved our objectives. And, and, and you, you, uh, you have to agree with them to a certain extent because the fact that you're interviewing me now to talk about Chinese football and the Chinese Super League is an indication of how much this has entered into the global narrative around the game. Um, you know, I don't recall you calling me up in 2012 or 2013 and saying, hey, you know, let's record a podcast, Simon, about this. You were so busy. I, you were busy. I, I, was, I, I was washing my hair that day. I think. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I, I think we have to acknowledge that uh, to an extent, China is part of the conversation now, the global football conversation. And, and you know, we, we've got Lippi uh, just renewed his contract to be the Chinese national team manager. We've got the likes of Cannavaro managing Guangzhou Evergrande. Uh, we, we can see that Chinese uh, teams are, are getting to the latter stages now of, of, uh, of the Asian Champions League. We had Guangzhou Evergrande actually reaching the, the semifinals of um of the, the the World Club Championship uh, several years ago, we have this collection of of, of uh, FIFA sponsors from um, from China. So things have changed definitely, and 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 in terms of uh, a review of performance over the last five years, I'm sure Beijing will will be able to spin this accordingly and and point out the positives and point out the the ways in which China has begun to influence the uh, the, the conversations around its its football. I think uh, in in more tangible terms, um, we know that China's men's ranking has not improved dramatically and and the national team is still struggling somewhat. We know that uh, the women's team is still reasonably strong. Its FIFA ranking has actually held up uh, remarkably well over not just the last five years, but the last 10 years. So hats off to to women's football in China, which still seems to be going reasonably uh, strongly. Um, Otherwise, if we look, for instance, at uh, the performances of um, China, Chinese club sides in in the Club World Cup, sorry, in the Asian Champions League, they actually seem to have tailed off somewhat uh, over the last two or three years. And and so rather than getting better, the club side seems to seem to have got worse. I think one of the other things that that, that is a concern is is that the Chinese government seems to have a a, a somewhat annoying habit of of continually intervening in Chinese football. Um, 
we know we know what we well, we think we know that the, the Chinese government and the Chinese Football Association have a, a strategy for the development of Chinese football, but we see some very peculiar interventions uh, that are made very very often on a short term basis. They're implemented without warning. Sometimes the Chinese Football Association have only just been told that a rule is being changed when the rule is actually changed, and and that puts them very often in, in a very difficult position. So I I, I think. The challenge right now for for China and, and the Chinese authorities is is to stop meddling, and to commit strategically to a long term plan, and to be patient, and to realise that if you want to build a, a a culture of playing football, a culture of supporting football, and to be seen as a as a as a legitimate and and sustainably successful nation at the sport then you have to be patient and and you know for fans of of clubs and national teams around the world you you know that it, it you can't do it in a in a month or a year or even sometimes 5 years it has to be longer than that it has to be perhaps over even 10 years you talked about the overall strategy and the fact that there's been some wild cards jokers thrown in perhaps by by the chinese government at times but overall it seems to be investment in the domestic league but getting in high quality players high quality coaches paying them a lot of money and then also they've invested in clubs overseas in in england southampton west brom other places how do those two parts feed into the overall strategy and and, and what else is is being used if you go back to late 2014 early 2015 uh, i think there was something akin to almost like a a second klondike you know a, a gold rush whereby Lots of investors suddenly were were lavishing money on um, the signing of overseas players to go and play for Chinese clubs. Uh, I think it was also um, resulting in significant overseas investments, and we can think of countless clubs in in Europe that uh, that were acquired by Chinese investors: Slavia Prague, Sochaux, um, Espanyol, Southampton, and and so forth. And and. This this really created, uh, if you like, the the myth and the legend that that there there is and there was huge amounts of money in China, but uh, the Chinese government was actually really unhappy with this this expenditure for several reasons. Firstly, they thought that uh, the money was better spent on uh, domestic talent and developing the domestic game, particularly at the grassroots level. I think there was also something too about concerns around. Uh, business people moving their assets offshore and the Chinese government is very, very sensitive to, to what it calls graft, in other words, corruption. Um, and, and so there were concerns that, that some of these business people were perhaps using football clubs as a way of, of, of moving their assets offshore away from China. There were also concerns too, and this was a significant one for, for the Chinese government around um, current, currency flight, capital flight. Uh, the, the economy, the Chinese economy as a whole over the last three or four years has been subject to fairly dramatic outflows of currency for, for various reasons. And, and this has put a great deal of stress upon the Chinese financial system, particularly around the acquisition of players and clubs, because um, some of the people, some of the Chinese people doing this were borrowing money from Chinese financial institutions. So what we subsequently saw mid-2017 was really the government switching tack completely and clamping down. So clamping down on on, on Borrowing in capital flight, clamping down on paying money, paying money to the likes of agents and overseas players, clamping down on overseas acquisitions, and even clamping down on some of those investors. And, and names that spring to mind are, are people like, for example, um, Wang, who was the, uh, the, uh, the the part owner of Atletico Madrid. 
um, they, they well and truly had their knuckles wrapped and, and were reprimanded by the state for spending heavily beyond China's borders. So I think what we find now in Chinese football in 2019 is something that's very, very different to, to how it was in 2015, 2016, which is uh, a, a much more inwardly focused um, strategy that is targeted principally at building grassroots football, developing domestic talent, and where investment takes place overseas now, which is 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 often, you know, fairly infrequent. Um, essentially, they've got those investments have got to wash their own face. In other words, if 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 Chinese investors are going to invest one dollar, they're going to expect to get two or three dollars back in return. So there's a much more a much stronger kind of rational economic basis for these investments, and certainly a stronger business case there. You mentioned it, but but how closely is the fate of the Chinese economy? linked with the growth of football there i mean and the background to this of course is donald trump is is um talking antagonistically with regard to a sort of a trade war with china uh, well i think there are several things to say first the, the, the first one is is that uh in the great scheme of things um football in china i think is relatively insignificant uh, when you walk around the streets of Beijing or Shanghai or, or uh, you know, Guangzhou, you, you don't get a sense that um, football is is massively important to to anyone there. Uh, and certainly, when I go to when I go to when I go anywhere, when I go to China, I go to Qatar, I go I go to the United States. When I go anywhere, I always go to sports shops to look at sports shops because I think sports shops tell you something about which sports are popular in, in, in those countries. And certainly when I look in sports shops in Shanghai, and I was in a sports shop in Shanghai recently, um, you really struggle to find the replica football shirts. And, and when you're asking about different types of shirt from different clubs, normally the people who work in those stores know very, very little about uh, about where to find replica shirts or, or know very little about clubs. So my point is, is, is that, if, if people outside China somehow think that the Chinese government and Chinese people are, are obsessed by or think that football is massively important, that's wrong. So in the great scheme of things, Chinese football is relatively – football in China is relatively insignificant compared to, to other things. All of that said, I, I think that even so, in, in political terms, being successful in football is, is important to Beijing, to government in Beijing, I think. The soft power effects of football are very important. And I think the narrative around, the conversations around football that the world has about China are, are really important too. And so what we're, we're now going to see, I, I think, that notwithstanding some of those interventions from the, from the government on a short-term basis, we're, we're going to see much more uh, stealthy pursuit of, of kind of long-term strategic interests when it comes to the sport. And so we won't see this, this kind of China that we've seen perhaps over the last three or four years where where it's a almost like a, a series of booms and busts. It, it's going to be a much more considered conservative approach. When I came back from the US, um, I came back after living there for a couple of years and, and suddenly I get Sky and the Chinese Super League is on it. And as you say, that was one of the markers for me that this league had some resonance. Now, it may have been cheaply sold or proactively sold by, by the Chinese uh, football authorities, I don't know, but it was one one obvious marker. What are the other obvious markers that Chinese football is going the right way hmm. in the sort of next 10 years or so? Because you said it's going to be more strategic, less boom and bust, but what can we look for that, that are, are green shoots of, not recovery, but uh, growth, proper growth? 
Well, I think at the elite professional level, uh, the main national teams, the, 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 the men have got to do as well as the women. So I, I think women, the women's national team is around 12, 13 in the FIFA rankings. The men's national team, I think, is, is still around the 60s and 70s. I, I've not looked uh, specifically recently at their ranking. So I think um, the men in particular need to improve. I think we also need to see some of the, 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 the younger teams, the, the, the youth national teams coming through. And, and if not necessarily winning tournaments, then certainly uh, progressing further than they, they currently do. Um, as far as club sides are concerned... Guangzhou Evergrande has tended to, to, to dominate over the uh, the last seven or eight years, and I think it's very important that, that that monopoly is broken. Last year, we had Shanghai SIPG winning the, uh, the, the Super League, which I think was an important development. Um, if we were able to extend beyond Guangzhou and Shanghai SIPG, if we, we, we see, for instance, Beijing Guan winning the league this year, and Beijing Guan have been doing very well so far this season, uh, possibly with one of the one or two of the other sides uh, getting in on this, I think it would be good for the appeal, the attraction of the Chinese Super League. But I also think it would be good too for the quality of the football there. Linked to that, there's something about football extending westwards in China, because at the moment, effectively, football in China is a, is a, is a, is an east coast phenomenon. And, and if you start with Shanghai in the, the north, and you work down the coast down towards uh, Shanghai and then uh, towards Guangzhou, this is where the top sides are. This is these are the affluent economic areas. Um, this these are the places where they m- most of the, the, the top Chinese Super League clubs are based. And so when when we're beginning to see teams like Chongqing, for example, and Xi'an. And, and, and others towards the West becoming part of the Super League and being successful. I, I think this too will be an important signal that, 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 that the depth and breadth of quality in Chinese football is, is growing. But I think for me personally, what we've got to see is, is uh, Chinese clubs regularly making good progress in uh, the Asian Champions League. I've mentioned already Guangzhou Evergrande has won the, ch- the championship twice, uh, but no other Chinese club has. And I think it's really important that Shanghai SRPG or Beijing Guan or, or Tianjin Teda or you know, uh, Jiangsu Suning, one of these other teams, is, is able to get to a position where they, they get into the quarterfinals, the semifinals, possibly even the final of the, the Asian Champions League. I want to change tack, talk about F1. And I find F1 incredibly interesting because it's had an ownership change. You could argue it was a dramatic change from old style to new style. Now, I know you've written uh, quite a lot about F1. And what have you seen in F1 that reflects wider trends uh, in sports business and sports sociology? Specifically, I'm talking about soft power here and this move well, towards what you call Eurasia. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, one of my one of my best kept secrets or worst kept secrets is that uh, I'm a kind of closet F1 follower. I wouldn't say a fan. Um, certainly, when I was young, uh, I was a huge football fan. But there was a period in time when I, I was switched on to, to Formula One, and, and this was during the days of you know, starting with James Hunt and I, I guess ending with Nigel Mansell and taking in Senna and. Uh, Gilles Villeneuve and, and uh, these guys and, and so what, it, what originally captivated me about it was a sport that was intensely competitive and exciting and I guess for a young kid lots of crashes and, and that's, a, that's a horrible thing to say but I, I, I guess that's what kids look out for is when, when the cars crash into each other and um, I'm not suggesting in, in any way that we would want to go back to that kind of thing um, but 
what I am trying to say is, is I think there was something very appealing and exciting and charismatic about the whole world of F1. Uh, and it certainly wasn't the procession that, or the series of processions that we now have. Um, what was significant at that time, I think, was obviously we, we had many of the F1 teams were British and they were based in Britain, with the possible exception of, of Ferrari. But many of the races were were, were based in Europe. And uh, if you go back to, to kind of 1978, 1988, you're probably looking at 20, 21, 22 races, of which at least three quarters, if not more, were, were, were staged in Europe. Um, but what was interesting, clearly, about the model of F1 over that period of time is, is the domination of Bernie Eccleston and the way in which he went about selling rights to races and setting up broad con broadcast contracts and handling sponsorships and ticketing arrangements and so forth. And so I, I think what we what we began to see was as we moved into the 90s and particularly into the 21st century, I think a lot of European nations, firstly, were, were beginning to uh, question the economic value of, of Formula One. Uh, they were beginning to question the nature of some of those deals that they had with 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 Eccleston and, and the Formula One um, uh, rights holder. But at the same time, I think what we're also beginning to see is, is a very changing world, a, a kind of eastward shift and eastward pivot. And and we can think about some early examples of that, beginning to see races in South Korea and, and in Bahrain and, and, and elsewhere. And, and I think that eastward pivot has continued and uh, we've we've now seen races, obviously in 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 Russia, in Sochi, in in uh, you know, in China, in Singapore. We've got Azerbaijan. We know that in 2020, Vietnam is going to be a a, 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 a host race venue. And I think Vietnam, in particular, in 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 many ways, is is the epitome of how the world is changing, and the epitome of how Formula One, as a consequence, has changed too. So Vietnam. Um, very young population, uh, very social and digital, digitally savvy, rising middle class, growing incomes, high disposable income. And I just think by comparison with the reluctance of European countries to, to, to pay the kind of fees that are associated with hosting F1 races, plus some of the economic concerns that those European countries have, they stand in stark contrast to what's happening in countries like Vietnam and, and elsewhere. And so... I think this is something that, that will continue. Uh, it will continue in F1. But I, 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 I see and and uh, and I observe regularly. It's not just about F1. It is about football and it's about basketball. It's about rugby. It's even about American football, which I think too is now casting kind of covetous eyes at, at parts of Asia. Just to stick with F1 for a second, I know you've, you've wound it out there at the end, but just to stick with F1, how far were they behind? And how much have they caught up in the last couple of years since Liberty bought out Bernie Eccleston? And I guess even you know, what do you mean by how far behind? Um, I think as a as a, as a money making asset for at least one person, um, you would have to argue that, that Formula One has, has, has never been behind anyone. Um, it's 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 been a a cash cow certainly for a select group of, of individuals. Um, clearly, uh, the new owners, Liberty, have, have come in with a view to extracting and releasing some of the latent value within the, within the property that they've, they've acquired. Uh, and essentially what I mean by that is, is changing the business model, changing the sponsorship model, 
obviously in terms of social digital and, and linked to that in terms of the broadcasting model, some of the change, there are changes to, to, to take place. Um, and what we're now beginning to see slowly emerge and somewhat grudgingly emerge is a, is a different kind of Formula One that is aware of, of, of its limitations, is aware that uh, certainly it's a mature product that is, is targeted at what is becoming an increasingly mature marketplace. Um, strategically, culturally, it needs to change. Commercially, it needs to change. Its business model needs to change. But I suspect that Liberty perhaps underestimated the the magnitude of the job that it faces. And, and, and there are some concerns. There are concerns around the number of people attending races. We can see concerns about the staging of those races. And, and we know that there have been difficulties, for instance, uh, in Miami recently. It's, it's difficult to understand, I think, for Liberty, how to make the most of the digital and social opportunities that are out there. And I think what's particularly interesting is, is, is arguably the teams are better at doing this than Liberty is themselves. So there's something around the, the, the relationship between the teams and um, the, the F1 series itself. And I also sense it, it, it's almost as though uh, F1 is, is a series or is, is a format that is, that is out of time because uh, we know there are environmental concerns. Formula E is making inroads partially as a consequence of that. Certainly Formula E is much more innovative and, and seems somehow more resonant with contemporary ways of, of, of consuming sport. We know there's something wrong with the format of F1. It's a procession. People really don't want to sit down for nigh on two hours watching a procession. They want something much shorter, sharper, and more exciting. And so I think for me, fundamentally, there is something about the uncertainty of outcome in F1. There's something about competition design. There's something about format and rules. There's something about the changing nature of the marketplace. You factor in social, digital, technology, broadcasting, the the needs and wants of people in in if you like the old industrial heartlands of Western Europe and, and North America, but also in Asia too. And this is a tough one. This is a real tough one for, for, for F1. And I think it's going to require some skillful management, some smart management. It will require a cultural change. It will, it will need a sound strategy, but it will need to be led and managed effectively as well. Just moving again to a different sport or a different movement, the Olympic movement. I mean, some of what you you said there made me think about the Olympics and the problems we have now hosting the Olympics. I mean, so many cities, when given the opportunity to vote yes or no, vote no to the Olympics for all sorts of reasons. Obviously, it's a very different beast, the Olympics, to F1. But those issues over over uh, cities or countries uh, hosting major events seem to be everywhere at the moment. And is it a case that it's going to take state involvement at times to make it happen what seems to be happening in europe right now is is uh en masse we're, we're suffering from referendum fever so obviously in in britain's case with with brexit but i think in other parts of, of europe in in poland in norway in germany and elsewhere there are referenda being held uh, on, on a fairly routine basis now asking local residents uh, do you think we should bid to host the Olympic Games, whether that's the summer version or the winter version? And, and unanimously, the opinion seems to be coming back. No, we don't think you should be doing that. 
that is, I think, is, is principally an economic concern. As we know, Olympic Games uh, cost a, a lot of money to bid for and stage. If we look at the the, the, the benchmarks that are now being set by the likes of the Russians and, and uh, the Chinese, um, I can fully understand why European countries and, and their communities are beginning to question uh, the value of this when obviously hospitals and education and, and, and other forms of economic activity and sociocultural activity are, are also demanding resources from public purses that are, in, that are increasingly tightly controlled. So uh, for me, I think uh, moving forward from here, Europe in particular has to discover a new way. It has to discover a new model for for uh, for dealing with this issue, because if there are countries out there in, in Europe, and, and I guess in, in Africa and, and America, North and South America too, um, then you have to be able to compete with the likes of the Chinese or the Indians or the Russians or, or the Qataris or, or, or whoever else. And given that the money may simply not be there, creative ways of, of, of dealing with this need to come to pass. And, and I, I think if we can make the comparison to, to the United States, Canada, Mexico bid, for for the uh, the 2026 World Cup, it may well be that we have to head towards uh, a more distributed form of of, for example, Olympic Games, where you have events taking place over uh, perhaps a longer period of time in different countries, but which nevertheless nevertheless contribute to to a greater event. So I, I think it's a, an inconvenient truth, and I like this Al Gore phrase a lot. It's an inconvenient truth for Europeans and Americans in particular that that. We, we don't necessarily have the economic and political power that we once did. Um, we seem to be wedded to our desire to be liberal and socially democratic. And so we do want to ask taxpayers, should we foot the bill for these things? And I think given, given the, the, the parameters that I've outlined in, 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 in what I've just said, I reiterate again, Europe needs to think about and find a new way of bidding to stage these events. And building on top of that, getting back to football, Premier League clubs, I use Premier League clubs, for example, but this probably applies in Europe, used to be owned by people from the countries in which they in which they played. And, it, for example, in the Premier League, a lot of, because of the ginormous size of the Premier League, um, a lot of American owners came in and a certain percent, percentage of the, the Premier League was owned by Americans. Do you, c- can you see some of those clubs moving into Asian hands, just building a part of your... Your, your shift towards Eurasia of sport in general? Because those would be huge sales of huge global sporting brands. But do you, do you think it's feasible? Uh, I think it's, um, it's always possible that if we can talk about non-traditional owners uh, acquiring British and European football clubs, I, th- I think it's entirely feasible because... Um, Essentially, what what these assets do is is to confer legitimacy and credibility uh, upon the, the the people who purchase them, and you've got to keep in mind uh, when when when, for example, you are a, let's say a Middle East a Middle East nation, uh, a, 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 an oil billionaire, let's say. Um, what do you get by buying a football club? Well, what you get is you get access to important people to decision makers, to uh, the kind of organizations and, and government departments that, for example, make decisions about where they where they buy their oil from, where a country buys its oil from. And so this is not just about somebody sat somewhere in, in Doha or Riyadh or 
uh, Abu Dhabi thinking, well, you know, I, I quite I quite like football. I quite fancy owning a football club. I'll go and do it. It is uh, it is actually a calculated purchase. It's 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 about. Um, yes, it is about generating revenue. Yes, it is about an economic return. Yes, it is about building profile and presence. But it's also the way in which the power of football can be used to build connections and, and generate value from those connections. And so I think so long as football fulfills that role globally in, in the international political and business community, then buyers from you know, buyers from Qatar, from Abu Dhabi, from India, from Malaysia, from Hong Kong, from China, from Kazakhstan, from wherever, will continue to, to, to have an interest in buying. You used the word connection there, but I'd argue from those, certainly in the Premier League, those uh, supporters who are filling the seats, there's more of a disconnect than ever. It's a, it's a difficult one. So I, I'm a, a lifelong fan of a club, uh, that is owned by um, a local business person. This business person is incredibly committed. You you really couldn't question his his love of, his commitment to, his devotion to his local team, my local team. Where we're two guys from the same town, but I I even for me that it, it's it's becoming a, a switch off. It's becoming a turn off because this person just simply doesn't have the money to be able to compete with. You know the, the 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 Abu Dhabi people at Manchester City, or Roman Abramovich at Chelsea, or even the Americans at Manchester United, for that matter. And so I, I I question what we do because it's almost as though my club there's no way forward, no way back. So I I think there there is something about disengagement when when your club is owned by a foreigner. But equally, I would argue there's a danger too about disengagement about from clubs that are owned by British investors because in many cases they simply cannot compete. I've always been a firm advocate of, of something like, a, and the way in which I, I typically describe it is, is, a, is a climate change summit for football because I, I genuinely believe that we have such fundamental issues in football that we need to address and we need to tackle that we, we need to have a summit whereby fans and broadcasters and clubs and players and, and um, you know, local communities and social media companies, we all need to reach a consensus about how we want football to be. Because right now, what I sense is, is still a, an incredibly powerful sociocultural institution. And we see this from the Liverpool-Barcelona game that um, it's still compelling it, it's still dramatic it still draws people in there's still a lot of excitement and, and emotion and love but notwithstanding that I think there's an incredible sense of alienation right across football from those that that have clubs that are owned by people they've never even met who are not from the town and those people don't really care right through to people like me you know, local guy clubs owned by another local guy he loves the club but they're never going to win anything because they just he just simply doesn't have the resources. Well, I was going to end it there, but I'm just going to ask you one more. So finally, what can we do in any way to solve that? I mean, that's a million-dollar question. That's another podcast, but you've just presented a huge issue that's at the hub of sport. The fact that it's growing, the business is growing, yet people are being massively alienated. You've talked about this summit, but everyone's got vested interests. It's a, it, it, they're going to back for themselves, surely. As we've seen with Climate Change Summit, everybody's got vested interests. Um, and we see, for example, with, with, with 
climate change negotiations. The United States are not happy because they they believe it's not them who that, that are polluting. It's it's the Chinese and the Chinese and, and the Indians are saying, well, hey, you know, countries like Britain and the United States, you you industrialize first, so you you cause more pollution than us, so you should be helping us instead of chastising us. So you know, that whole narrative around. Um, uh, antagonism and vested interest. You know, this is this is just part and parcel of being a human being in everyday life. So when it comes to football, it's it's nothing different. It's nothing new. But I think for me, the the crucial part of all of this is is effectively the British government. Certainly, over the last twenty five years since the inception of the Premier League, has done nothing. And I'm not just talking about the Conservatives. I'm talking about Labour too. They've done nothing. So effectively, a, a free market has ruled in football. And so we're now in the situation whereby, you know, the majority of Premier League clubs are owned by foreign foreign investors. We've done nothing either to stop that or to moderate it or to control it in any meaningful way. But if you expand that across Europe, because it's not just us having this issue, it's, it's they're having this issue in, in France, in Spain, in Germany and elsewhere. The European Union has done nothing. So the European Union sports sport policy has effectively been focused on uh, participation. It's not been focused on protecting its industrial assets. So I, I think that the British government and the European Union together um, should should have by now done something, but I think certainly there's an opportunity going forward for there to be some kind of football parliament, for want of a better term, whereby the important stakeholders, and I'm not just talking about people with money, I'm talking about fans, I'm talking about communities, I'm talking about supporters' trusts, I'm talking about grassroots football projects, but equally I'm also talking about Sky, and I'm talking about Amazon, and I'm talking about MasterCard, and I'm talking about UEFA, and Manchester United, and Real Madrid. All of us have a voice, all of us deserve to have that voice heard, and we need to negotiate, consensually negotiate a way forward and to, uh, to establish a vision for our football, our heritage that we feel comfortable with. On that call to arms, thank you very much, <laughs> Professor Simon Chadwick. Thank you very much. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Sports Content Strategy.